Let us pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill this place, that you would open our eyes uh, to your glory, and that you would point us uh, to the Father by way of Jesus. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to do a series. Oh, um, uh, it'll still have some pithy things in it, so don't worry. We'll try to keep it relevant. Uh, but we're actually going to go through the book of Acts. Now, I say that we'll zoom through it, but, I mean, this could be like a 12-year endeavor. Just kidding. It won't be. Uh, but it, but we'll just, we'll just take it as, as it comes. Um, one of the reasons why I think it, it's a good idea to do the book of Acts is it gives us a glimpse of what the early church was like, what their MO was, and how they did ministry. Um, but also it seems to be incredibly relevant to, to us today. Um, I've been reading some really interesting articles. It's sort of a back and forth. A guy named Charles Taylor just wrote a new book, and Charles Taylor is the guy that believes that uh, the world has gone completely secular, just totally secular. And so if you're a person of religious belief, then you're, you're up against uh, the world. Now, there's a Christian sense in which if you're a Christian, you're always over and against the world. We already know that. Uh, but Peter Berger, there are a whole bunch of seats close to me. Um, <laughs> Henry, come down close. Phillips, please. Okay. Um, so uh, Charles Taylor believes that the world is getting more and more secular and uh, religion sort of... Uh, on its way out, and uh, Peter Berger, uh, who teaches at Boston University, uh, is very smart. Um, he introduced me to this great Zulu proverb, which is, um, if you don't bang your own, own drum, who will? Uh, so that's always been a, a good, good thing to think about. But uh, Peter Berger doesn't believe that. He believes actually the world is an incredibly religious place, except where it's not. And I think Peter Berger's right. I think... Peter Berger is, um, is that if, if you go to most of the world, you find at least significant pockets of, of deep, uh, abiding uh, faith. Not necessarily Christianity, uh, but that's because I think what Peter Berger understands is that uh, the human heart is always looking for something to cling to. Right? It, it's looking for something uh, to worship. In the words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. And so... Uh, it may be that uh, Charles Taylor and others sort of see it as a manifestation of, well, they're just very secular, but what that manifests itself is they have a religion. It's just a secular religion. They either worship their career or at the very rock bottom, they, they worship themselves. They, they put themselves first. And uh, the book of Acts uh, gives us a great glimpse into what it's like to be the church in the world, uh, but not of the world. And not uh, necessarily, yes, uh, over and against what the world is saying and the world is doing, but also still in the world. I, I think that there's oftentimes uh, this idea that uh, the church ought to sort of stand back and, and be ye separate. Uh, the most extreme manifestation of that would be like the Amish. Although I saw a picture the other day of an Amish horse and buggy pulling a bass boat uh, on a trailer. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to take the motor off or, or what they're going to do, but um, so take that, Charles Taylor. Anyway, um, they uh, but uh, but the Christian witness in the early church, especially, was to actually engage the world in such a way that it really got the world a little bit agitated. 
Um, you know, uh, at one point in the book of Acts, uh, it says that the world was provoked to jealousy because of how the church loved one another. And that was not that everybody was just so kind and lovey-dovey to one another all the time. Uh, but in fact, there was something remarkably different about how uh, Christians uh, interacted with one another and interacted in the world. If you could put it in a word, Christians cared. They actually cared what happened in their communities. They cared about what happened with their neighbor. Uh, they cared about one another because, indeed, in some sense, uh, the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. If you're a Christian, you know that to be true, that you are actually closer to people who are not Christians uh, because uh, you're closer to people who are Christians, even though... Uh, you might be related to someone who is not a Christian because of the common love that you share in Jesus Christ and because you're able to actually share the very depths of your heart. You're actually able to share with them what it is is the most important thing in your life and what it means to you and how it has totally shaped uh, your, your life. And so I had a minister at Christ Church Charlottesville, where Paul Walker is now, named Jeffrey Fishwick. And he used to always preach with a cough drop in his mouth. And it drove me bonkers. I mean, at one point, like, I just wanted someone hit him in the back, you know. So I apologize, but I'm having a hard Joe is having a hard time this morning. I'm having a hard time. Craig's in Montana suffering for the Lord in some trout stream. <laughs> Fisher of men, indeed. Um, Deborah is in the less exotic alabaster preaching this morning. Um, so um, many are called, few are chosen. So, um, so we're we're having a hard time this morning. But um, but one of the things that was being ever put before the early church that they were not only putting it wasn't as if they talked about one thing when they met as a church and they talked about another thing when Paul was up on Mars Hill. But they talk about the same thing over and over and over again, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, they did talk about now what are the implications? What does it mean uh, to be Christian uh, believers? A lot of, you know, we, we have all these magazines now that we can subscribe to, or we can go to a bookstore and we can pick up a book. But what if you're a Christian in the early church? Hey, do you have a stone tablet that I can, you know, is there a scroll that anybody's written? I mean, there, was, there was none of that. There was an, in fact, praise the Lord. I mean, we would have been in a heap of trouble if there were self-help scrolls or, you know, or anything like that back then. Uh, there actually were. Um, there's some pretty funny ones that are worth reading. But, uh, but with the early church, there was an absolute reliance on the guidance of the Holy Spirit to speak clearly and definitively to them. And so it's been rightly said that the book Acts of the Apostles would be more aptly and rightly titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what you have, you have these ragtag group of guys who and women who are stuck in the upper room and they're uh, afraid that they might be next. And uh, Peter denies Jesus, uh, even to a little girl. And then fast forward just 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, and uh, you have Peter getting up and giving this remarkable Sermon and then getting hauled before the Sanhedrin and says it's more important for us to obey God than it is to obey man. You're like, who is this guy? Like, what happened? What is what is the difference? What changed in Peter's life? Now, one of the things about Peter is that he's still Peter, uh, but clearly uh, the Holy Spirit had filled Peter and he was now doing things that he wasn't able to do on his 
own and the remarkable rise of Christianity throughout the Mediterranean world and indeed the world today uh, can only be chalked up to the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we're going to take a look uh, right now at Acts chapter 1. And what has happened is Jesus has presented himself several times after his bodily resurrection from the dead to the disciples and to various people. And it really is just sort of a coming and going, sort of poof, he's there, and then poof, uh, he's gone. And, um, and what was he saying and doing uh, over uh, those uh, days between his resurrection and his ascension? And we actually have record of it because Luke is the author of both Luke and the book of Acts. And so when Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book being the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so this is the second book in his uh, two-part series. And uh, we actually have an idea of what uh, we are told what Jesus was up to. We read in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 47. Uh, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is after, this is after the uh, road to Emmaus experience. Uh, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am setting the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power uh, from on high. And so he's saying, go out and tell people about the gospel. And there is a tremendous fear, and uh, it's completely unfounded, and yet there's a fear of preaching the gospel in the church today, honestly not because of any sort of political implications or there's some fear that somebody might get upset, uh, but there are a lot of preachers who preach today that simply don't think that the message of the gospel has the power to save. They just don't. And they buy into the whole idea that, well, what people are looking for is something more. But what I've learned in talking to people, especially children, what my children think they need and what they really need are two different things. And so if, you know, the, one of the bad things about, I, I was a sociology major in college, and so I love statistics, I like polls, I like asking questions, but the problem is if you take a survey of people, people expect you to listen to what they say, right? So if you ask somebody's opinion, they think that you might actually put it into practice. And, uh, and so if, if I were actually to take a survey of, of any church, I'm sure that I would get some very helpful uh, suggestions uh, about things to do. And uh, thankfully, one of the great things, I did go back um, and I was able to see some of the things that y'all sent in about the dean search. Like, what, what are you looking for uh, in, a, in a new dean? And, um, and I, I thank the person who ever said anybody but uh, Andrew. <laughs> Just kidding, nobody said that. Um, but um, one of the things that they said over and over again that folks said is that we want somebody who, who boldly proclaims the gospel. Like that's, that's first and foremost. That's really impressive. And the only reason for that, I think, is the Holy Spirit here. It's not that you came to any conclusion on your own because I know that um, I still do it. I still do it with, with Lenten preachers. Right? I'm, I'm, you know, a lot of you say, I bet you it's very hard for you to sit in church and listen to other preachers. Yes, it is. And Lauren is so sweet, and so she kind of, you know, has to push me down sometimes and, and sort of say, you know, easy, easy. Um, uh, but just when you think I'm bad, 
Think about Jane and Frank Limehouse in church right now. Um, God bless Jane. Um, so, but it's easy for, for me and probably for you too to get, to get hypercritical about the message. And one thing is content, theological content. Is this the gospel? But also, um, I go into church feeling like this is what I need to hear this morning. I need to hear a word about this, uh, that, or the other. And I'll be honest, any, any given Sunday, there's probably one particular thing that I'm struggling with. Uh, there tends to be one thing in my mind, uh, which is among many, but there's one that sort of rises to the top. It's the gopher that's got his head up the highest, uh, where I think this is something that I really uh, need to deal with, but it seems to be beyond uh, my control. And, um, and I hope that, that it's a word this morning about that. But the wonderful thing about the gospel is the gospel always addresses whatever it is that you're dealing with. Uh, even though I'm looking for a rather specific, specific, specific word uh, to Andrew. But also what I, what I encounter often is what I think I need in a sermon. Uh, the sermon has nothing to do with that, but it still hits me square between the eyes and tells me exactly what I do need and what I need to hear. And so that's the Holy Spirit uh, at work. And so the apostles went out proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to do that is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them to do something very curious. He says, stay in Jerusalem and wait. Stay in Jerusalem and wait. Um, the ministry of the disciples and even the ministry of the apostles, as exciting as it is in Acts and in the Gospels, you start thinking about all the downtime um, you know, it wasn't constant miracles and, and constant, there was a lot of teaching because Jesus was around them. But at the same time, uh, it, it's not, uh, did, what did I say? Did I, say I, saw, I thought someone was correcting me, I, I, which I welcome. Uh, so it, if you look in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, you, uh, there's, there's still, there's a lot of downtime. And I find that, that Jesus saying, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. Uh, I feel like all I do is wait. I feel like that my life is just one big waiting moment. And I don't know about you, but what I'm in the habit of doing is I live in the future all the time. right? I, I don't like back to the future part one. I like back to the future part two. right? I like the sort of, although it's a little bit depressing, but the moving ahead and, uh, and everything is sort of, you know, uh, I know in my heart that it's not true, but uh, I think well, if I obtain and secure this, or accomplish this, things will be a little bit better. And I tell myself it's not an idol. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, not, it's not something that I feel like I, I need and have, but my heart puts a whole lot of stock in it. A whole lot of stock in it. And it may not be something that's, um, that is an obvious or, or big time idol. It might, it might actually be something good, like in ministry. Uh, it might be, if I can get there, I, when I was ordained and as I went along, first off, like Lauren and I would talk about, well, where do we want to be? You know, that's the, when someone says in a job interview, where do you want to be in 10 years? I think that's the most ridiculous question. Like on a beach, drinking a pina colada, like I'd love to be there in 10 years, you know? Uh, kept man, um, uh, that would be great. Uh, that's an honest answer. Um, but you know what they normally expect? Yep, that's a very touchy question because, I mean, what you're, what you're really thinking, if it's not about pina coladas and uh, sandy white beaches, it's um, you're thinking, your job. <laughs> I want your job, and I, I, I'll be firing you in 10 years. Um, if you're really honest. 
And, uh, and so Lauren and I would talk about things, and, and we actually got to the point where we actually had a caricature. We had, this is what we want. And in a lot of ways, we felt like God was speaking to that. We went to a wonderful church right out of seminary, St. Helena's in Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, just wonderful, wonderful place. A great place to be. We thought we'd be there for three to five years, and we, we were. And, uh, and then uh, we thought that we'd go to sort of a medium or small-sized church and then put our sort of fingerprints in it and, and grow it, and we'd just be there uh, forever. Well, that ship has sailed. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, now what? Now what? I mean, what do, you, what do you do after you're the dean of the Advent? Someone reminded me, well, you, you die and you go to heaven. That's, that's what happens. <laughs> that's where you go uh, after you're being the dean of the Advent. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that... I, it's so hard for me, and, and I mean, this whole process of me becoming the dean has really wait, right? Because you can you can plan and you can plot all you want, uh, but God is going to determine the direction that you go in. And even the, if the disciples didn't wait, um, God's plans would not be thwarted. Right? He was going to work out his purposes uh, according to his will and his good time for his glory, uh, whether the disciples wanted to cooperate or not. Uh, and yet, uh, in that waiting, uh, it's incredibly important. And I think that oftentimes, I think that waiting is a waste of time. I, I, I think it's a waste of time uh, to be doing something, got to get this show on the road, we need to be planning for something. And, uh, and yet... Uh, what we find is in that waiting that God does a lot of his work. Uh, it's, it's in that time where God speaks to you, uh, where God begins uh, to move in your heart. Uh, when you're simply waiting, God can give you a clearer picture of what he's calling you to do. And so when it happens, uh, you're able to simply move into it. Because what I find in my life is God starts to do something, and I'm kind of like, well, you're going to have to wait a minute, God. i got something else going on right now that, that's the Lord's work. Uh, so uh, it's, it's not this, uh, I mean, it normally is this crashing of, plates together, uh, but staying in Jerusalem and waiting, Jesus didn't say, it's time to get pumped, it's time to get ready, uh, it's time to, to really beef up on this, that, or the other, but I want you to wait, and I want you to pray, and we know what they were talking about, they were talking about the m amazing past days and weeks uh, where Jesus had been raised from the dead and had appeared to them in bodily form, that's uh, what they were talking about. And then Jesus comes and says, uh, gives them uh, a charge. He says, you will uh, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. Now they had asked the Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? After all of this, the disciples still think, Lord, is this the time now when you're going you're gonna to create an earthly kingdom here on earth? I mean, now that you can sort of vanish in and out and uh, make things, you know, you're, you're resurrected now. I mean, now would be the time to go ahead and put you up for election. You're pretty popular. And uh, now is, is this the time to do it? And Jesus reminds them uh, the power that you're going to receive and the power that you're going to be entrusted with, the message that you're going to be entrusted with is so much greater and so much more powerful than any earthly kingdom will ever afford. 
kings and kingdoms will pass away. Think about some of the amazing empires and kingdoms of the world that are dust, that are just dust. You can go all over the world and see uh, evidences of of these kingdoms. Uh, And even some of those kingdoms have since dead kingdoms on top of them. So you go and you you see the amazing expanse of Alexander the Great's uh, kingdom. Uh, And then, of course, uh, the Greeks uh, on top of that, the amazing civilization that they created. And then, of course, the Romans. Uh, I mean, what the Romans were able to do and the impact that they had on the world uh, was, do you think that any Roman in their mind would have thought, this will come to an end one day. Right? I mean, do you think that some, you know, I mean, imagine the sight of standing on the, you know, sitting at the gates of Rome with Pope Gregory about to go out and, and, and talk to the barbarian horde. Uh, like, I mean, how did we get here? How in the world uh, did we get here? But one of the things that we know is that as time marches on, uh, only one thing endures. The word of the Lord endures forever. Everything else will will pass away. John Yates, in a sermon he preached uh, at the Falls Church once, was talking about possessions and items. But when I listened to it, I was sort of thinking about uh, the mighty and the powerful and the things that we attribute power to in our culture and society. Um, And uh, he kept saying, you know, your possessions will one day, it's all going to burn, right? It will all turn to dust. And I started thinking about that, about great civilizations, and I shuddered to think, what if, you know, 500 years from now, they start doing some archaeology and digging up our stuff? Shoot. (laughs) What in the world will they say about us uh, when they uncover the Internet uh, and and emails and... um, You know, know, it's no wonder they perished. Um, But... uh, but all of it ultimately is, is of no, it, it doesn't have the same significance uh, compared to that uh, power in that message which Jesus gives. And that message can't be contained so much so that he says that you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is God. And, you know, we all, you know, there's that terrible story of the guy who went to worship at St. Mary the Virgin Church in New York City, very high church Episcopal, almost pre-Vatican II. And this guy was the Baptist from Texas, and um, he was visiting and uh, was sitting in the pew and liked what the preacher was saying. So he said, amen. And everybody just kind of turned and looked at this guy, but didn't think anything of it. And the preacher kept preaching after stopping, and the Texan said, hallelujah. At this point, the ushers could take no more of it, and to try to preemptive strike against him, uh, went up to him, and they said this, it said, um, Sir, I, I'm sorry, but um, but uh, you're gonna you're disturbing the worship. And he says, "Well, I can't help it, uh, but I've got religion." And the usher responded, uh, "I'm sure, but sir, I'm also sure you did not get it from here." Um, <laughs> and um, so the same could be said about the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit just seems uh, crazy and holy, other and God the Father and God the Son were okay with. Uh, but God, the Holy Spirit, seems mysterious, a little bit crazy, and uh, and, and best to be avoided. Uh, and yet, um, he's just as real, he's just as active, and you can't avoid him, right? The Holy Spirit's not an it. He's, he's a person of the Trinity. He has a personality. It's a him. Uh, you can use personal pronouns. Uh, and so this Holy Spirit, which we'll get to um, uh 
next uh, week probably. Um, uh, this Holy Spirit is going to come, and God the Holy Spirit is going to fill your hearts. And that, what a remarkable thing to say. I mean, uh, where did God live according to the Jews? Where was his presence most greatly concentrated? In the temple, the Holy of Holies. So much so that they had a curtain, you know, the curtain that was torn in two. Uh, when I read that is up until, honestly, just a couple years ago, I thought it was a nice little curtain, just a nice little curtain. Uh, but the curtain was actually up to four inches thick. It was actually this huge sort of mat uh, with beautiful colors and workmanship. Uh, and, and I just always had thought, well, that's to keep you out. Right? That's to keep you out. Uh, but what I had forgotten is that that was also to protect us. Right? That was to keep uh, the presence and the glory of God uh, in so that when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and, and sprinkle blood on the uh, mercy seat, uh, they would tie a rope around his ankles so in case he died, uh, I'm not going in after him, you going in after him? No. Uh, they would actually they just pull him out uh, just in case. Um, so much for the body system. But, uh, but with Jesus' death, um, the curtain in the temple is torn in two, and God's spirit... Is, is unleashed. And, and now that spirit, which was too hot to handle uh, and still is, uh, now resides within you and me. Right? And there's not some sort of special, uh, there are some traditions that, that teach that, well, uh, you have to receive a special baptism of the Holy Spirit, and when you do, these things will manifest themselves. But if you're a Christian, uh, you have access to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, fills you, and you are empowered to do things that are beyond yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get up in the morning and you know, give yourself a pep talk. Uh, but what I'm talking about are the things that God has called you to do. Right? Uh, do not say that you are a little child. Uh, when we make excuses, God, I surely couldn't do that. What we're saying, really, is not so much, God, I can't do it, but what we're saying is, God, I don't trust you enough that you can do it. I don't think that you can, you can actually use someone like me uh, to do this, that somehow my inabilities and my shortcomings are just too much for you to overcome. Well, there's an argument to be made against that. It's the disciples. And what a motley crew. I mean, not the A-team, to say the least. I mean, Jesus, time and time, if, if I had had, you know, I would have said, I said, Jesus, you need McKinsey or Bain or Boston Consulting Group because you got you got to get rid of these guys, right? You, you need some heavy-duty consulting on these guys. And yet, uh, God's power was made manifest in their weakness. And so they wait. And this message that goes out, in our tradition, we talk a lot about apostolic succession, and normally the way that we talk about it in the Episcopal Church, honestly, is bunk. <laughs> what we talk about is that, well, this bishop put his hands on this bishop, who put his hands on this bishop, who, and we can go all the way back to the time of the apostles. That's a little bit of a stretch. Like, we don't exactly have a paper trail uh, on that one. Uh, but, I mean, theoretically, sure. It's true. But is that really all apostolic succession is? Is that bishops put their hands on other bishops who put their hands on other bishops who put... Or is there something much greater than that? Uh, in fact, uh, what we find here is that the apostolic succession are two things. One is the message of the gospel. 
right? The rightness of the gospel, the clear articulation of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, taking that apostolic message and making it the apostolic witness. You want to recognize apostolic succession? It's the preaching of the gospel, the pure word of God, and its true and complete form. That is apostolic succession. Without it, the rest is just cufflinks. Nice, but not necessary. I'm sure some bishop will be writing me. Uh, but it's true. Uh, so that apostolic witness to go out and to preach this message uh, and not themselves uh, turns the world uh, on its ear. It actually changes things. We're going to get to it, but you read the sermon that that um, um, that Paul preaches uh, on that day, and it's not uh, a long sermon at all. In fact, it's still one of the longest um, that has been preached. And it said, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What? Right? That's if he got paid by the person, he'd be doing great. Right? I mean, but like, I mean, what Peter did is he was able to get up and preach a message that was not about him. He was like John the Baptist, that I might decrease and you might increase and that you might see and behold, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain from the foundations of the world. And then Jesus ascends. Right. And um, I've seen paintings of the ascension of Jesus, and he's sort of like pushing back and sort of hovering up in the air. Uh, and what I'd forgotten about until I was getting ready for this study is that if you've been seeing Jesus sort of appear and disappear since his resurrection, why is this that startling? I mean, think about it. I, I, I mean, this is, uh, he actually doesn't say that Jesus was sort of, uh, Jesus. they sort of sat there like the, my kids do and I do. I'll admit it, I do it too. I kind of like to watch the balloon. Um, we bought all these Chinese lanterns online, um, which I'm sure is illegal in the city of Mountain Brook. Um, so, because you're like, you're, and they're like, oh, they're so beautiful. And then you realize, I just put a flaming ball of fire into the sky, uh, and one day it will land. Um, so, uh, but apparently they're very safe. And, uh, but you know, it was just the most, I, you can't help but sort of watch it until, and if I had to go back inside, I'd still look out the window and sort of see like this little, uh, little, little speck um, and birds falling from the sky. So, uh, it, so it, it, my impression of Jesus ascending was that where, he just, uh, and yet uh, we're told in uh, the Lucan account, why do, uh, we're here. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Which is, why is this any different from this appearing and reappearing that's been going on? Uh, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, we all have this idea, even after Copernicus in the universe, that like heaven is up there and we're down here. But we know that like uh, that's not necessarily true. And so a lot of, remember when the Soviet Union sent uh, Yuri, um, yeah, uh, sent him up into heaven. And remember what they said? Uh, we, have, we have been uh, to the heavens and God is not here. God is not here. Uh, and for them, and under communism, that was just another uh, reason why they could say, well, God doesn't exist. Well, that's like going to the Globe Theater in London and going up in the attic, and someone said, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm looking for Shakespeare. 
He's not, he's not here, therefore he must not exist. Uh, but what we know is that Jesus ascends, he goes to the right hand of the Father uh, where he sits and he reigns uh, in heaven, which, uh, you, I mean, how silly is it to think, well, if we just build a rocket ship capable enough, uh, we might actually be able to get uh, to heaven. Remember, that was tried once. It was called the, called the Tower of uh, Babel. Right, Babel? Have you, remember that story? It didn't turn out really well. Uh, and no matter how high we ascend, this is also a good metaphor, uh, no matter how high we get, uh, God always has to stoop down to see us and, and to meet us, no matter how high we get. And so they're sort of marveling at that. Uh, but these two men, these angels dressed in dazzling white, say, okay, um, you have work to do. And the first order of business is the replacing of Matthias, I mean the replacing of Judas. Uh, they lost a man, and so they need to replace him. And this has always been sort of a sad story for me. I really uh, feel for um, uh, Joseph, uh, who is also called Eustace. What a great name, Eustace. Uh, I grew up with a guy named Eustace. He hated it. And um, so uh, what they do is they narrow it down to two candidates, Joseph, also called Eustace, and Matthias. And then they cast lots to see who would replace Judas. They, they rolled the dice. And my man Eustace lost uh, on a roll on the, of the dice. He, he, he loses. And I just have always thought, well, I wonder what ever happened to him. But really, whatever happened to Matthias? And a lot of people think, well, this is kind of crazy. Why would you ever cast lots? for someone like that. Well, first of all, what we know is that both Matthias and Joseph, a.k.a. Eustace, uh, they were both um, qualified to be apostles. They had both actually experienced the risen Lord Jesus. They had encountered the risen Lord, which was the pre-qualification to being an apostle. Even St. Paul, the only reason why St. Paul is able to be an apostle is because he experienced the risen Lord where? On the, on the road to Damascus. Um, Whereas it, anybody who they were not quite, that's the, the office of apostle died, biblically speaking, after, after the last apostle died, which is why we have this office called overseer or elder or presbyter in the, in the Greek language. And we use the word presbyter to translate, we translate it into priest in the Episcopal Church. But uh, so they were both qualified. And yet what they were doing by casting lots is it was not a game of chances so much as they had such a high notion that God was in control of his providence that they knew that it wasn't the dice choosing Matthias. It was God. That even they decided they were going to get out of the way and allow God to do the choosing. Now that still makes all of us squirm and, and it, there's, there's a sense of insecurity uh, and for good reason. It, it takes it out of our hands. And so this was no game of chance, but was entrusting this choosing of Matthias uh, to the Lord. And as they continued to wait, um, they waited with a spirit of expectation that God will do something great. And he does. Uh, but I often think in my own waiting uh, that maybe God won't do something great. Uh, maybe in my waiting, God will forget about me. Uh, maybe in my waiting, uh, God will ask me to do something that I don't want to do, that will be way above my pay grade. But of course, that's exactly what Jesus asks them to do. His commission to them is to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty big territory, right? the entire world. But he's very clear, Jerusalem, 
local, Judea, the larger area, Samaria, which I'll get to in a minute, and to the very ends of the earth. Uh, we know in the gospel readings, where's the last place any good God-fearing Jew would want to go? Samaria. Right? In fact, it would add a day or two to the journey, but they would cut around Samaria. If you were up in Galilee, they would go along the River Jordan to Jericho and cut up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem just to avoid Samaria. Right? Because they didn't want to mess with the people. In fact, Jesus once used that road and ran into the woman at the well uh, uh, who, who Jesus asked for water. And, uh, and they began to have a conversation about Jews and Samarians. Uh, Samaritans have nothing to do with one another. The parable of the good Samaritan. And so Samaria is, is uh, where the disciples don't want to go. Uh, the last place. Not only just sort of an intimidation factor, but also they don't deserve it. Right? They, they don't deserve to hear the message uh, that we have to, to bring. Very much, uh, it'll just be pearls before swine. Uh, why? Why should I even bother? And so what we see is that there's an expectation that God will do something great, but more often than not, God calls us to do something that we wouldn't have come up on our own and we'd rather not have him come up with. Uh, but that is indeed uh, where he calls us to go. And so um, uh, in your life, uh, I imagine that you find yourself more often than not waiting. Uh, but trust in that power that comes on high, the Holy Spirit who comes and invades uh, your life uh, and empowers you even to go to Samaria, even though um, I'd rather just be in Jerusalem. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes, 50, that's right. Penta is 50, thank you. <laughs> David, if you're going to continue to be a parishioner... Um, <laughs> I'm yeah, it was a slip, thank you. You're right. You're right. Well, thanks, you just killed the mood, David. No, Kelly Siebel's has it. Oh, well, uh, no, it's not. Uh, except for the kids. It's okay to clap for the kids, but, but don't, don't clap. Maybe a, t maybe a tip jar? Dr. Wilson clapped? I heard right Which one? The, the, the elder Dr. Wilson. Well, praise the Lord. What's that? Oh, it's the cross. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, uh, David. Um, let us go forth rejoicing. <laughs> rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.